morning, everyone. So glad you're here this morning. I have to tell you before we jump into the sermon how excited I am to see some of you this afternoon. We're not able to do a event the way that we had planned, but we are hoping that we can have a, a casual time where people can uh, pick up a bag in our back lane, a, a gift package for you that we really are excited about giving you. We put a lot of energy and thought into that. And it's going to be great to see your faces, even though it's maybe going to be only kind of driving by. But uh, it'll be great to at least connect in that way. Uh, we are, as you know, we're continuing our series in Establish. And uh, today, even though we're going to be looking at a Old Testament time, we're actually going to be using the New Testament to talk about it. Because in Acts chapter 13, there's a wonderful summary that's kind of given about this time in Israel's history. It picks up where Jonathan uh, spoke last week and kind of comes into what we're going to be discussing this week. And so this is what it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 20 and following. <clears throat> It says that God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel, the prophet. So that's what we talked about last time, this period of judges where there was this ongoing cycle of having a, a judge that kind of brought uh, righteousness and, uh, and safety into, uh, into the country. And then came a time where the people kind of rebelled again, and then another judge was, uh, was brought forward. And so that's what that time was about. But then, during the time of Samuel, the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. Now, if you know anything about this story, Saul was not a great guy. He had what looked like the makings of a great leader in terms of his stature. The Spirit of God actually um, came upon him, <clears throat> but his heart was not devoted to God. And so this first king in Israel's history was not great. So, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So now the, the defining characteristic of this better king is responsiveness to God. And so, uh, the author is excited to, to tell the audience that there was a better king that came along, a king after God's own heart, and uh, this was a, a much better choice. Well, what we know at that time is that even though David was far better than Saul, he was not ideal. Perhaps the greatest uh, crime that he's committed was his, um, his relationship with Bathsheba, killing her husband to cover up his adultery, it was not great. So even though we're kind of at the pinnacle of Israel's history, even there it's stained with sin. And so what all of these leaders do, whether they were judges or prophets or kings, they all point beyond themselves to the need for a better ruler, for a better king. And this is what it goes on to say in verse 23. It says, It is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who, God, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. So all of this is all pointing toward Jesus. And uh, Jesus' leadership is described in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Jesus' government and its peace will never end. Isn't that a remarkable statement? There, there'll never be an ebb and flow of good and bad. When Jesus is established as king, 
His peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. He's continuing what was established in the Old Testament, but far superseding what any human king could do. Now, what we want to be able to look at today is this idea of God's kingdom. You know in our church that we talk a lot about uh, God being a God of love, that he calls us to love God and to love our neighbor. And so uh, uh, Matthew 22 summarizes the whole Bible as being a message of love. And so what we want to be able to look at today is how does this message of love mesh with this idea of a kingdom? Whenever we think of a king, uh, at least when I do, there's we just think of power and control and, and somebody who's there to dominate us and looking for servants to make themselves even more great. And we think of their uh, huge palaces and, and people who are impoverished at their expense. These are the kind of images that can get conjured up in our mind. And so it's important that we take some time and look at how love and kingdom actually work together in beautiful harmony. The way that we're going to look at this initially is we're going to actually contrast the idea of kingdom with a few other words that sound like they're synonyms. So these are what a kingdom is not, all right? So that's how you've got to listen to this part. This is what a kingdom is not. First of all, a kingdom is not a country. What makes a country a country is a particular landmass. So we say that that we describe Canada as a country, and when we describe it using that language, we describe a particular geographic location. Now, the kingdom of God, or even the church, is, is not a location. But it's easy for us, isn't it, to think of church like a location. We say, I'm going to go to church. But the kingdom of God is far bigger and more grand than any physical territory can hold. But we can think of, though, kind of, it's a, it's, a, it's a location, it's a place, it's something that we attend. But if we think of church or the kingdom of God in that way, we're not thinking big enough. Another uh, word that we can think is a synonym is the idea of a state. We have the United States. <clears throat> well, in a state, there's a shared kind of social system, a shared government. And again, this doesn't fully capture what a kingdom is. Maybe the way to think about it in terms of church is that we would think of church as being a community. So it's, it's not only not just a, 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 a place that we gather, it's also not just a community. But we can think of church that way, can't we? We can say that I'm going to go to church, that location, and then I'm going to meet with this group of people. And it's our, it's our social relationships that kind of comprise uh, what church is all about. Now, obviously, that's terribly important, but it still doesn't capture the most essential nature of what a kingdom is. A final alternative to what a kingdom uh, is not is a nation. Now, what a nation is, is a group of people that have something in common. They, they, they have common ancestors a common culture, a, um, a common language, or it's a, a nation is something that people rally around that they all share. Uh, we, uh, we own a, a Honda Civic, and it's funny, when we got our Civic, the, um, 
they had these advertisements that you, you've now joined Civic Nation. I mean, as if that's something to brag about. But anyways, uh, you know, it, it was this idea that we ha all have something in common and this commonality is what's going to bind us together. This can be another reason why people choose a particular kind of church, is that they hunt for a church that has all of the uh, qualities, all of the beliefs and values that they hold dear. They're looking for that in a particular um, congregation. So, uh, again, this doesn't really capture it. It's not a place, it's not just a place that we attend. It's not just a social gathering. And it's not even a place where a group of people all agree on everything and have everything in common with one another. There's no way that that's true, not just in a local church, but for sure in the kingdom of God. Uh, right now, there's over 30,000 denominations in the world, not churches, denominations. So there's huge diversity in the kingdom of God. It doesn't revolve around conformity to a certain uh, prescribed list of beliefs or ideals. Now, obviously, we're a people of the book, we're a people of the Bible, but we'll get to why that's important in a minute. But it's helpful to know that church is more than where we go, it's more than a group of people, and it's even more than sharing something in common with other people. Yet we know that these are often the reasons why people don't go to church, is uh, they don't go to a location, they don't uh, prescribe to having these set of friends, and they don't agree with these sets of beliefs. And so they kind of can write themselves out of the kingdom of God. So if it's not these things, then what is it? Well, what's unique about a kingdom is that there's one thing that all these other things don't have in common with a kingdom, and that is that we obey a common king. The primary element that distinguishes a kingdom from every other political or, or governmental system is the fact that a king is the head of it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 says that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What unites the church above all else is our worship of Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord. And so it's not just that we believe the same things. It's not just that we enjoy community and friendship and that we all gather in the same location when we can't even do that now. Um, it's because we all worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Now, that is the distinguishing factor of the church and of the kingdom of God. But here's the problem with that. It's super unpopular. Like, it's much easier to just think of church as being a place that we attend or a group of people that we enjoy or a set of beliefs that we all agree upon. But when we inject the idea of king, we are confronted with the problem that Jonathan was talking about last week, where now it's all about authority and power is brought into the equation. And all these things make us terribly uncomfortable, don't they? Because now there's the opportunity for great abuse. So why does God prefer, in spite of all the potential risks involved, why does he prefer to describe what he is doing as a kingdom? 
and that what he invites each one of us into is to participate in this kingdom. Why does he do that? Well, the way that we can answer this is we're going to move into our second section here, is that what I would like to do, and just stay with me on this, is that what we're going to do is examine three basic political systems. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to look at these, these three systems. And the first one we're going to look at has the lowest risk involved and also the lowest freedom. Now, we're going to have to explain what that is in just a minute. And then it's going to kind of go toward higher risk and higher freedom. So number one, and it's the political system that we're all very acquainted with because we live in one, is a democracy. And what you look at in the world today is really a disdain for any other kind of political system. Democracy is touted as the best way for governments to function. Why is that? Well, it has the lowest risk involved. It's, a, it's elected representatives that form common law. So nobody just gets to put themselves in power. We vote them into power, much safer, right? Because then we vote for who we think is best going to represent our concerns. And then what they're going to do is get together as elected representatives and form law in order to allow us to be able to live together. So what keeps us able to walk in a kind of uh, national community are these sets of laws. Now, if you look at democratic societies, they have way more laws than any other form of government. When we look in the Old Testament, before the time of the kings, Israel was a theocracy, meaning that God was the, the obvious ruler of his people. There was no intermediary king. Now, look at how little, I mean, if you, if you take what, what, where the laws are, there's a little over 600 laws to describe how a whole country should behave. Well, this is just shocking. I mean, if you consider, um, you know, we're, right now we're, we're going to be building a, a, a laneway house. And wow, the number of restrictions and laws to build that little laneway house is just shocking. But why are they all there? For one very simple reason, mistrust. It's I can't trust you to look out for my concerns uh, any more than you trust me. And so the only way that we're going to get along is if we create a whole bunch of laws to keep us safe. And anytime I think that you violate one of those laws, I'll appeal to the law. You'll be punished if you don't conform. And so this is how we're going to get along. But at the very heart of democracy is the idea of mistrust. Uh, and so what that means, and we're going to, again, we got to unpack this, but there is a lowest, there is the lowest risk because of this, uh, you know, that we have elected representatives, but there's also going to be the lowest freedom. And again, that just, like, how could that be? For sure, democratic societies are the freest societies. Well, we're actually going to question that this morning. Let's look at the second one that has now moderate risk and moderate freedom. And it's a word that you might be unfamiliar with, but it's an oligarchy. Perhaps a word that you might be more familiar with is an aristocracy. An aristocracy is a noble oligarchy, and it simply means this, that it has an appointed ruling class, not voted in, but appointed 
by the people who were in power before. They appoint new people to take their place as they get, you know, too old or unable to do it or whatever it is. But um, it is the idea, th th well, the ideal is at least, that there's going to be a noble group of people who are going to be able to govern a country well because of their education, their experience. But nevertheless, this is what an, an oligarchy is. So you can see that there's a little bit more risk in that it's not elected representatives. They're now appointed by people who are already in power. So there, that's already some room for some suspicion, isn't it? Uh, but it, so it's, it's kind of one step away from a democracy. Now we get to almost in a sense, you know, the worst uh, um, political system, which is a kingship or, or a kingdom, which is what we're trying to, you know, um, advocate for today. So what's the kingship? Well, it's ruled by one king. <clears throat> now, obviously, this has the highest level of risk, doesn't it? Just imagine a business or even a home. If there's only one person in charge, well, that's dangerous, isn't it? You want to be able to have a, a board of directors. You would, ideally, you want to be able to have a, a mother and a father. And because in plurality, there's more safety. Um, so we know that a kingship has the highest level of risk. If a democracy goes bad, it's kind of bad. And you just have to wait four years and elect someone new and hope that they do a better job. But if a kingship goes bad, well, what are we going to do? There would have to be some kind of coup to overthrow it and start from the ground up. Because uh, when a king goes bad, it's really bad. Now, here's the interesting point that we need to unpack today. How is it that a kingship, a kingdom, would actually be freer than a democracy? How could that ever be true? Well, let's imagine a healthy marriage, all right? Uh, where, you know, the husband and wife are, are, are getting along and there's lots of, uh, <clears throat> there's lots of, of kindness and warmth and uh, mutual trust and uh, servanthood, all those kinds of things. Now, uh, in a healthy marriage, what are you free to do that you're not free to do in an unhealthy marriage? Well, the primary thing that you're free to do is to trust. The primary thing that you're free to do is to be vulnerable. To not have to appeal to a whole bunch of laws because you know that the other person has your back. That uh, what you're sharing together is trust. And that trust is liberating. Um, I don't know, you know, how much... Perhaps you've experienced a trust relationship. But as you've experienced a relationship where you can kind of exhale and be yourself, know that you'll be forgiven, know that you'll be accepted, know that you'll be empowered, and that somebody, you know, champions who you are and wants to see you succeed, and you do the same for them. Wow, if you've ever experienced that kind of relationship, you know how freeing it is. It's tremendously liberating that you don't have to be the person that only looks out for yourself. 
But in a democracy, that's really what we end up doing, don't we? Is that there's nobody who's really going to look out for my concerns in the way that I am. And so I just have to care about myself. And since I don't have any power uh, in and of myself, I'm going to have to lobby and get other people to think my way. And then we're going to vote somebody in to represent us. But it's really driven by a self-serving agenda. <clears throat> so just as trust allows us to flourish in love and relationship, democracies allow self-centeredness to flourish. Democracies are beautifully designed to promote self-centeredness. They're ideal, in fact. And so if you and I see freedom as only being about self-expression and doing what I want when I want, well, then we should push for democracy at all levels. Uh, sure, we're only going to be caring about ourselves, and we know that everybody else is thinking the exact same way, so it's an incredibly self-centered uh, society. But at least I get to be who I want to be. And so what we actually find inside of democratic societies is a tremendous level of, of suspicion, a tremendously small life, and people who don't know how to trust others. It's actually just as much about power as a kingship is, but now the power resides within me, just looking out for myself and seeing everybody else as my enemy. And it seems like the only law uh, in a democracy is just don't hurt somebody else, whatever that means. But it's, it's, even that's defined self-centeredly. And so we, we think that we're actually experiencing freedom when all we are are, are self-centered beings trying not to bump into or violate other people's self-centeredness. Now again, if you haven't experienced a trust relationship, it's hard to imagine that this is actually a constricting on you. But if you've tasted of trust, then you know the liberation that it produces. There's just a freedom. Uh, but it's not a freedom, you know, from something. It's a freedom into something. It's a freedom into a love relationship. What have we said often in our church? What's the foundation of a, of a loving relationship? It's trust. Without trust, you can't be free to receive love, and you can't be free to give love. And if democracy is based on mistrust, then it actually undermines our ability to give and receive love, which produces a very lonely, alienated, self-centered society that becomes more and more abusive and uh, more and more destructive. So let me ask you then, uh, how do you approach God and his church? Do you approach God as a king? Or do you approach God as an elected official? Somebody who you did your research, you went online, you found all the potential gods uh, that, uh, that you could cast a vote for, and you decided that Jesus was the best one. And so for as long as Jesus fulfills your agenda, uh, you'll keep him in power. But the minute he violates uh, your self-centeredness, well, you'll just cast him off and look for a better leader. 
I mean, this is how we can treat Christianity, isn't it? Is that we're just here to use God for self-serving purposes. We haven't actually graduated out of a democratic mindset. And so we even will, will view church this way. I will be in church for as long as it's convenient for me. Uh, for as long as it's a country, it's a place that I can attend that I enjoy. For as long as it's a state where I can have friends that, uh, that I enjoy their, you know, I enjoy their company. And that it's, uh, that it's a, that it's a nation where, uh, you know, I, I agree with, with everything that's going on there. But the moment any of those things are violated, well, I'm out of here. What's uh, so important, I think, about this time in experience of the pandemic is that these other foundations of church are really being eroded, aren't they? We can't all gather together. Now we can't even, even uh, be in the same room together, even in small groups, and it just emphasizes our diversity. But there's one thing, even in a pandemic, that it cannot steal from us. And it's our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and being defined by his love and his leadership, knowing that he is our king and we have submitted our hearts and lives to him, that even if we could never meet together again, even if we don't have the perfect friend group, even if there's people who believe things that are slightly different than what I believe, even though we have the same king and follow the same book, there's different interpretations. But even if that's true, I am still devoted and, and rooted in the kingdom of God because I've settled in my heart who my king is. Not just my elected official, my king. And he has chosen me to be a part of his kingdom. And my appropriate response to him is surrender. Trusting that he's good and loving and kind and generous. That he can protect me from my enemies and keep me safe. My job is to surrender. My job is not to self-protect. And the kingdom of God crumbles if we try to participate in, in, in the kingdom in a self-centered orientation. Our only freedom from self-centeredness is a kingdom where Jesus Christ is the head, the king of that place. Where, as we've already read, uh, he will rule with fairness and justice, that he will establish peace. What's peace? It's relational harmony. And so we trust him to do that. We drop our guard. And in that trust, love can flourish in our lives. So here's our hope as we, uh, as we wrap this up. Here's our, our, our hope. And it's recorded in uh, Revelation 11 and then in chapter 20. Of Revelation. Listen to this. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The power to rule the world now belongs to our Lord and his Christ, and he will rule forever. There is coming a time in which Jesus will return to earth, and this kingdom will become political. It, it, it will be physical. It will, uh, it will, it, it will, uh, move from being only established in our hearts to having a new level of physicality about it. And this is our greatest longing. Isn't it our prayer? Thy kingdom come. Why? So that thy will would be done on earth as it does in heaven. This is our hope. Our hope is the, 
is the, is the coming of a kingdom that has one ruler over the whole world. I mean, this is almost hard to say out loud because it sounds like such a violation, but it's exactly the only way that peace will ever come to earth. And we're inaugurating that kingdom by already submitting to the coming king. Because this is our hope, and we're already preparing for it. And then in verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy are those who share in this first rising uh, of the dead, raising of the dead. The second death has no power over them. Now listen to this. They will be priests for God and for Christ and will rule with him for a thousand years. What is this time about? Is God establishing his, uh, his, his leaders in his coming kingdom? You and I are being prepared to rule with Christ when he returns to earth to rule in his power in an, un, in an unlimited fashion. We're being prepared for that. How do we get prepared to rule in the name of Jesus? By practicing trust and love. That we're, we're unsafe leaders if we don't know how to trust our king and out of that trust, be vulnerable and servant-hearted, otherwise known as loving, to those around us. This moment in which you and I now live on earth is a critical moment for our eternity. Not just securing our eternal salvation, but preparing us to lead in Jesus' name. Preparing us to cast off this democratic suspicions and to embrace surrender to a loving God. And as a kingdom mindset washes through us, we're liberated to become the kind of loving people God has always designed us to be. This is our hope. This is what we look forward to. So this clarifies then our life mission, doesn't it? Let me read out this sentence because I really believe that this clarifies what we're about as the people of God in the kingdom of God today. We prepare ourselves, our families, our neighbors, schools, businesses, governments, our land, physical land, to receive their rightful king. Our mission is to prepare the world to receive Christ. You know, in the, in the church, we reduce receiving Christ to be a very personal and almost internal experience, don't we? But what a kingdom mindset helps us do is realize that there's way more going on. For sure it's about the individual. For sure it is. But these individuals, you and I, are participating in something much grander. And it's the redemption of the world. And so what we do with our lives is we bring people and things into right relationship with their king. It's what we spend our whole life doing. Whatever work you're in, you're preparing that line of work to receive Jesus. If you're in the trades, you're going to work in such a way that if Jesus moved into whatever you built, you'd be proud to have him reside there. If you're in the business world, uh, you would be proud that Jesus would have bought one of your products. And you wouldn't have sold it to him if he didn't need it. If you're in, the, in, the, in caring industries, you imagine each person you care for in a, in a hospital or a, or a care home 
or a church. You imagine each one of those as Jesus. And this is exactly what we read in Scripture, that what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me also. We treat every single patient as treating Jesus. Isn't that powerful? This is how we welcome the kingdom. That it, it's, it's how we behave toward our neighbor. It's how we, we keep our yards. It's how we uh, uh, handle the environment. All of these things, we're doing it in worship of God, in anticipation of his coming, making way, making straight a way for the king. What a, what a noble life purpose you and I have been given. So here's my exhortation to you, that as you would desire to be a loving person, recognize today that this will only be achieved by grabbing hold of a kingdom mindset. It's our only liberation from the kingdom of sin and self, where we are the rulers. Our only liberation is to worship Jesus Christ, to surrender and trust to him. And as we do, we're radically transformed personally, but able to now affect the world around us. Oh, Father, I thank you for your coming kingdom. I thank you for your genius in being willing to assume the role of king. We need you to be king not just of our hearts, but of our, of our homes, of our cities, of our workplaces, of, our, of the entertainment industry, of our nations. We need you to rule. And so, Father, we begin with our own hearts, saying, rule us. We surrender ourselves to you. And as we trust you, Father, would you please give us the grace to extend your loving rule into the world around us. Free us from our suspicious, self-centered mindset. Deliver us by the power of you being our king. We worship you as such today. In Jesus' name, amen.